Hello, everybody, and the warmest of welcomes to the 78th ever Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast all about board games, card, card games, games table role-playing role games. games. My name's role-playing games. My name's Quinton Smith, and I am joined by Paul Dean. King of games. King of games. Game ruler. I can't... 78 feels weird. I feel like we should have done more by now. Uh, I like that they are infrequent because it means we can keep the passion and energy up. Yes. I feel like if this was our 500th podcast, we'd be like... I mean, at some point it will be, because we will do that many. But we're more frequent than we used to be, aren't we? I'm not making that up. No, we're not. One of the requests we got from our fans was that while... uh, Do more. The videos... Do more. Yes. uh, The videos are the most popular thing we do, uh, and then the written articles are quite nice, but... Those people who love our podcasts ruddy love it. They just can't get enough. They ruddy so and we do, we do lots of written stuff. We do loads of other stuff that isn't just videos. Or if you are a podcast only person, please listen to please look at please consume the other stuff that we do. It isn't just the podcast because we are multidisciplinarians. That's a word, right? Uh it might be. There hey. And Hello. you know what? If you go to shutupandsitdown.com now, we've had a bunch of really fun reviews, uh, including recently Paul's full-fledged opinions on so many words. Decrypto and the Mind, both of which games we talked about on the last couple of podcasts. They're, ha- they're hard games to articulate. We'll we'll talk about those a bit today, won't we? They're hard to sort of if if we showed them in a video, I don't know if it would come across. If we did a live play. I don't know if it would come across, so I ended up writing stuff about them, and I don't know if it's come across. <laughs> it's really hard. Oh, I'll tell you what. That's something that uh, mm-hmm. people can look forward to next week as far as our job being expressing stuff. I went and talked at a school this week. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you did that on Wednesday. How was that? Uh, it was weird, man. I sat down in front of a bunch of 11-year-olds who all want to be oh. YouTubers, and I said, here's why it's hard. And I tried to be really high energy and yeah. explain to them how it's basically caring for a living because uh, people who watch YouTube want to see people have fun. Yeah. So you got to have fun. And so help me God, you have to keep having fun because if you stop having fun, your career falls apart. And I was trying to sort of express this in fun ways. And I have never had a tougher audience because uh, do you know what it's like to look out into an audience and think, oh, I hope I'm doing well and see two kids physically on their back, <laughs> like, <laughs> like properly just asleep. Um, but no, it was uh, it was pretty in- a-, a rewarding thing to do. And uh, we're going to be uploading the video of me talking to kids because I oh, thought there's a video of it. I filmed it. Yeah. So next week, hopefully we're going to be uploading that video. And then if you've got kids, you can show them. The My, video, the video. They, they can lay on their backs and go this is terrible as children and puppies do yeah i i don't think they were interested in what i was saying but because the teacher had shown them our youtube videos before oh, when no. i walked into the classroom um the, some of the kids went <gasps> purely because they'd seen me on youtube um not necessarily because they liked our content or even played board games just the fact that i was on YouTube was enough. Anyway, that's something you can look forward to on our YouTube channel soon. So a very quick aside about that. A friend of mine who teaches was saying that this happens uh, at his school. Everybody, not everybody, a lot of people want to be a YouTuber, which I'm not at all actually going to tell people not to do. Right. Don't, you know, if you have cool ideas, pursue them and put time into them. But it was the idea of everyone thinking, I'll do this and it'll work out great immediately and not follow like the shut up and sit down trajectory of like we're now seven years old and we're doing quite well but that didn't happen overnight 
Yeah, that was the the main point I gave the kids was like, hey, who here thinks it'd be fun to make a video? And then all the kids put their hand up. And then the next slide in my talk was a picture of like 100 videos. And I said, who here thinks it would be fun to make 100 videos <laughs> over five years? And then a few kids like so putting their hands down. Other treats that wait for you on shutupandsitdown.com are new videos of uh, 878 Vikings, lovely little war game with little fellows running around the map. Yeah. Um, just hundreds of little fellows. Uh, and if you like pitting your little fellows against other little fellows, maybe that game will be for you. Also, we have reviewed Bargain Quest. Yeah, very interesting. Mm. Uh, so, should we talk about uh, the meat in this pudding? The, the puddle in this podcast. It's the games that we've been playing recently. Hot new content for Shut Up and Sit Down. We're going to be talking about Arkwright. Arkwright, the game of factories and making some shirts. It is exactly as boring and distressing as that sounds. It's also an <laughs> enormous, big, expensive, heavy, slow, complicated game. Uh, there's a site that we quite like called Heavy Cardboard, who review yes. big, heavy board games. It was their game of the year a few years ago, so I'm glad we got to play it. We're going to be providing thoughts on that. I've played a little Reiner Knizia game called High Society. Yeah, that's got re-released recently, is that right? And a beautiful new edition from Osprey Games. And Osprey. that's a game about being rich and wanting to show everyone how rich you are, but staying rich. <laughs> Which is difficult, because to be rich, you have to buy expensive things. Uh, and finally, I'll talk a little bit about Broom Service. Um, a game Which from is- legendary designer Alexander Pfister about... Um, delivering potions in a kind of uh, Kiki's delivery service. So usually we save the best till last. I, today, am in a mood. It's a nice spring day. I'm going to find out what you think the best is. I'm going to say it. I like Arkwright the most, I think. Let's talk about the biggest, meanest game first. Let's serve everyone their dessert for the first course. So, all right, hold on. So Arkwright is this very big, complex Euro game about running factories uh, employing workers, gradually automating those factories, making shirts, cutlery, bread, and lamps. Yeah. Uh, and you manage this job market as well as managing your individual factory boards. You send stuff overseas. You affect the demand and the cost of all these goods over yep. like decades and decades. It's quite complex. And just like a few moments ago, you were saying it was sort of big and distressing but i i don't know i had a really good time still didn't you have i did have a good time um we should say as well that it's set in the industrial revolution it's set at a time when factories were kind of first invented and to borrow a sort of quip from uh, our colleague matt who i really like it was an era when people thought it was fine to insert children up chimneys uh, and that yes. kind of is the theme of the game uh, that you're playing because you're hiring enormous quantities of people. You might close their factories. There's an awful lot of sense in automating their jobs. Mm-hmm. So you hire people and then immediately replace them with machines, which is great because machines are cheap. Um, definitely not a sense that you are the good guys. You're just the sort of villainous industrialists. Um, so, yeah, where where to start if that's your overview of Arkwright? That- I mean, is that accurate? It's got all these different interlinked systems, and the interesting thing about it for me immediately is they all affect each other. So you have you have these phases that you go through where uh, you'll look at your bread factories. Are you making bread? How much are you making? How much are you selling it for? Um, but you have, as soon as you pull on one of these strings, I feel you affect everything else. Like you improve the quality of your bread or you advertise your bread, which increases demand. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's only as much demand as there are people who can afford bread. Yes. Great way to get people to be able to afford bread is to give them jobs, which is put them in your factories, which unfortunately after a while 
means you have to pay them more because if there's a lot of unemployed people, you don't have to pay them very much. Yeah. But the more people who start to get jobs, the more you have to pay. Uh, but nevertheless, the more demand there is for goods. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and obviously you want to be the person who sells like the most cutlery. So you make your cutlery cheaper or you make it better, which means you people buy your stuff first before they start buying. Yes. And there's there's no way to not describe like one part of this game without describing all the rest that are yeah. tied together. And it, I, this is, I think, uh, like a lot of complicated games, um, Arkwry is more intimidating than it perhaps is. Um, yeah. I spent, you know, an evening before you came over reading the manual and studying it and poring over this board um and when you when i think players sit down to arc right they'll immediately be intimidated by a board that has basically no art but just about 100 numbers on because it's yeah. all different charts and grids and there's you know the track of what round you're on and then what phase of the round and then demand and then unemployment and then shipping and different tokens you can pick up to for example put a foreman in your factory which means you're basically just looking at uh, it's like almost like opening a, the board looks like you've opened a giant book on the table and not yeah, like a like fun a ledger, bit, yeah almost. it looks like a ledger <laughs> yeah um, but yeah sure enough when we started playing it wasn't so bad <laughs> I feel like I do, so wait wait hold on You is this your dessert or is this just like your chalk that you're eating <laughs> <laughs> for me it was quite chalky but I for the, for the listener this listeners of this podcast I can only assume that the biggest most expensive game is the most exciting one to hear about yeah sometimes maybe yeah. I don't know I I didn't have any I came at it really open minded I didn't have any expectations and then I when I saw all these inter, interlinked systems and cubes I was like this might be a little outside of the to the too much of the top end of the heavy euro stuff but i like i said to you the other day i'd play it again and i'd be keen to play it with more people yeah because i feel like the di- we played it two player i feel like the dynamics would be substantially different in an interesting way like you'd want to play it both two player and four player to get different flavors yep i don't know if i'd hugely recommend it to most people no. but i think it's good at what it does i think it's interesting and i liked it i had a good time with it me too i we should probably explain the the central central mechanic out of all these interlinked systems is uh, the the desire of your goods. Yeah, and desire is a mix of stuff. Um, it's if, if you make if you have a factory that makes quite good bread, and that bread has a retail price of ten pounds, and you sell it for nine pounds because there's a difference between one of those two numbers. Your bread then has a desire of one, which means you can sell a maximum of one loaf of bread. If your factory makes three loaves of bread, then you're going to need to crank up the desire more if you want to sell all of it by lowering the price more or investing in advertising or investing in quality. Yeah. Um, but even if I invest in quality and then I can sell my three loaves of bread, that doesn't mean anything if you're making eight loaves of bread and you've advertised the heck out of it. And then that means that all your bread's going to be bought up first, which means maybe now I have a factory that's full of workers who are these like distressing grey meeples that these little <laughs> sort of pawns that just exude misery yeah and i've got a row of those guys all making bread and i can't sell the bread then maybe i start thinking about like well i just can't compete with Paul. with paul maybe i'll just close this factory and give up on bread maybe that was we had some bread wars didn't we, we i did. never i never went into the cutlery business which i should have done <laughs> in the end i did all right for shirt well i had that auto shirt man who just a- always bought one of my shirts oh your patron helpful. yeah um but yeah it's it's so I, I like the fact that quite often a lot of euro games like this where you have your own board and your own economy yeah 
there's a lot that you develop very independently, whereas this, you know, how we price stuff, how we advertise things directly affects other players because if you're really pumping out the advertising, if you're making your stuff cheaper, it ships faster, it goes it sells, it goes yeah. out the door, while the other players just end up with piles and piles of the stuff, which maybe they can put in a warehouse and ship overseas, and that's not bad. But if they're not planning for that, they're not prepared for that, you are, in a very classically capitalist way, you're directly affecting your opponents and preventing their ability to make money. And that's the most exciting thing about it for me. Like, lots of Euro games say, you know, this is your farm, or this is your, you know, railroad company, and it, I hope you do well. Whereas um, Arkwright... <laughs> I hope you do well. I hope Good you luck. do well. <laughs> <laughs> Our creator says um, you can have four factories. You can make these four goods, lamps and breads and shirts and cutlery. Um, but what's wonderful about it is, you know, you can immediately buy and open all four of those factories. It's going to be very expensive. But if your opponents aren't really pressuring you, maybe you can make money from all of them. Mm. Whereas what I started finding really fun, and this was the most joyous moment for me, is thinking, well, hang on, what happens this turn if I pour all of my resources into... Uh, and I looked over at your board... And looked at what was your most expensive but worst factory, which I decided was lamps. Mm-hmm. So then I just uh, had my engineers come up with better lamps and cheaper lamps, and I advertised my lamps. And then we had a turn where, I think it was lamps, um, where I sort of <laughs> did all this, trying, hoping you didn't notice, and then I instantly filled uh. all the desire for lamps. Which meant that turn, I didn't make that much money. I made like £30. But you lost money? Yeah, Because you had to sell it. I had a bad lamp spell, and the thing is, initially, I had a what what we called in my family the the, the good lamp years, <laughs> which is I was like, let's make lamps, and people were like, wow, lamps are amazing. I want a lamp in my house, and then you turned. I was doing artisanal <laughs> lamps because they took loads of people to make. This is the other thing. All the goods. You know, depending on how you upgrade your factories and how you staff them, different factories make different amounts of stuff and require different levels of staffing. And I had like 10 people on an assembly line making one lamp. lamp. (laughs) Um, And I didn't automate that. I wanted to automate my bread and shirts because shirts actually ended up okay for me. They ended up as my largely reliable moneymaker. But that was because I never got into shirts, which meant you had full dominion over the shirt. Which is good. I liked that. I liked that shirt safety. But the lamp thing was just like 400 people crammed into something the size of a very small Marks and Spencers, (laughs) hurriedly screwing things in while I screamed at them about how much money they all cost me. (laughs) It's, yeah. Yeah, and that was the fun of it for me. It was, um, there are these wonderful pinch points where, like, let's say you're making bread, and then your opponent, you know, massively improves their bread factory, and you're looking at stuff like uh, every round is a decade, and after certain decades, old factories begin to uh, become obsolete. Yes. Which means you need to just pour more workers into them to even have them function at standard levels. So you're looking at this, like, specter of obsolescence, and you're looking at your friends advertising their bread, and their bread's better than yours, and you've got that choice of, like, well, either I can keep going status quo and probably lose money, or I can close this factory and then put that money into something else, or I can fight them, and I can try and sell more bread than them and damage their sort of profits, and that was the most interesting moment for me. That felt profoundly interactive in a way that was really interesting. I feel like you liked this more than you're saying. 
I enjoyed it a great deal. I would definitely play it again. Um, The reason I'm wary is just last episode, uh, if you haven't listened to the last podcast, definitely do, because it has us talking about a fascinating, bizarre game called Container, which is similar in that it has players running a weird, very boring economies that are nonetheless exciting because they are interlinked. Yes. I buy what you're selling, and then I warehouse it, and you buy it back off me, blah, 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 blah. It's a funny game. Um... But what's fun about Container is the integers are all really small. I make for a dollar and you buy for two dollars. Yep. In Arkwright, I had a calculator on my phone out halfway through the game and used it for the whole game. Yeah. You used to be, in real life, for a brief spell, you were an accountant, right? Yeah, I was an accounts clerk. Yeah, yeah. so I, at points in Arkwright, were going, Paul, what's seven times 13? <laughs> and then you would, well, go on, let's this do it is now. Literally, so, uh, why are you doing this? <laughs> all right, this is how I do this. 10 times 13, I cheat. 10 times 13 is 130. So half oh, that, right, you get okay. five times 13, which is 65. Wow, great. So then I add two lots of 13, which is 26, 65, 75, 85, 91. <laughs> Is that right? I don't know, man. No, that can't be. Yeah, oh, it must be. I don't know. We'll see. So the thing is, <laughs> I don't know I, if that's right. When I play um, economic games, oh, Paul's getting his phone out to check. Keep, keep talking. When I play economic games, I like to try and calculate my plays, right? So in Arkwright, I was trying to work out, well, should I sell seven loaves at seven pounds or should I sell eight loaves yeah. at six pounds? Um, and those numbers, th- those calculations were difficult. And... Oh, 91. 91. Paul did the Paul did it on his phone. Dude. It's 91. Um, and I, in all the years we didn't mm-hmm. shut up and sit down, I, I've never, aside from like end game scoring, I've never felt the need to use a calculator. Yeah. I've heard that when people play Power Grid or Chinatown, yes. in the final rounds you can use a calculator, but I never did. I, and I think this is, depending upon the, the type of game and some folks, how they like to play, some people will just do this on the fly. They'll just... So, you know, hold on, I need to math out my next turn or two, and they will do that. Yes. I don't know if I want to do that myself, but in something like Arkwright, it just makes sense. So this is sense. why I think you're actually very well suited to Arkwright, because of two reasons. The first off... Because <laughs> I used to do that. Well, yeah, because you... No, not because you used to be an accountant, but you're okay with numbers, right? You can mm. do these sums. I can't. I have to use calculators, which I find a bit frustrating. Yeah, that's fair. Second... You are also the kind of person who doesn't feel inclined to do these calculations. If I play Container, if I play, I don't know, Istanbul, I'm counting up the possibility space of different moves. You and I just played Century Spice Road recently. Yeah. Um, a, a little card game, but still, when I'm playing that, I'm tra- I'm turning each card into sort of its numerical qualitative value in my head. Yeah. And then I'm going, well, this card is just better than this card, so I'll play this card instead. I want to do that in Arkwright, and I I have to. Um, so when I'm trying to decide between two moves, I have to do the maths of which one's better. Yeah. But I can't because the numbers in Arkwright are too high. So I think you're well suited to Arkwright because you're able to do the maths when you want to, but also you don't feel inclined to wrestle with these big sums. That's kind of true. There's a lot of stuff in games like that where I just, something in my head gives me a foggy approximate figure. And it's like, if you do this, something roughly like this will happen. If you do this, it's like a very weird fuzzy logic thing where I'm like, this will work out roughly like this. This is roughly like this. This is roughly. This looks like the best thing. I'm going to go back to thinking about dogs. <laughs> and then I just zone out and I think about dogs until somebody says it's my turn again. Yep. Uh, one thing I did really like in Arkwright is for a game that has this like um, very sort of mechanical and mathsy feel, uh, I really liked the events that happened at the end of each decade, um, which are, you know, profoundly like uh, historical and and 
almost sort of musty things like a war in the continent or you know crown jubilee and a war in the continent might mean oh like, yeah we can sell more or in the last round you and i got hit like hit by luddites who smashed yep. all of our machines yep that was great um but i liked it because to have a game that is like you're going to be doing calculations now but then also is self-aware enough to be like but we're going to throw in some fun events too i liked that you could do maths and calculate until you couldn't because occasionally you get hit by random events. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I enjoyed, rather than it just being a game of planning, that I was reacting to events, but also to my friends. Um, oh, and it has one absolutely bizarre mechanic, which I really liked, even though the maths of it is incomprehensible to me. So at the start of a game, you all decide uh, how many shares in your company you're going to sell. Yeah. And as you do better and you sell more things, your share price increases. The value of your company increases. So um, uh, (laughs) what you have to do is you have to buy your own shares back because your starting capital that you use to buy factories is like... If your starting share price is 10 and you sell seven shares, great, you've got 70 quid, go and build some factories and employ some sad people. Um, But then at the end of the game, your score is your share value multiplied by how many shares you have. Yes. So because your share price is increasing, like halfway through the game, you might be like, oh, I should probably buy some shares back now because they're going to multiply my score. Yeah. Um, But also, that's money I could be spending on investing it in my factories and of course that's that's the classic sort of paradox here is at what point do you start buying them back how many do you buy how much how much of your money it's weird but it's like investing in yourself i guess how much of your money do you throw into a hole in the hope that it you know becomes many degrees more valuable to you by the end of the game and it's like i don't know that's up to you and that also depends on whether you run the company very well it's also depends on how much money your friends have um because uh, maybe my favorite moment in the whole game was when you bought a bunch of your shares back and you were broke and then i poured my own money into advertising to just mean that you had one terrible round where you couldn't sell bread yeah and lost money and i didn't make any money but because you went below zero um, you had to have an emergency sale of your shares, which also tanks your share price. Yeah, that felt really aggressive and fun to me in a way that most economic games don't let you be that. Like, and that, I'm going to hurt you now. That I mean, that's the thing that potentially could have happened more. It didn't happen, I think, too much in our game. But uh, I mean, also if you ship stuff overseas, you devalue your own company, which again, early in the game, could be good because you sell some stuff. Your company doesn't look as strong. I don't know why it just doesn't. Our people, um, the manual says uh, your investors don't like the potential risky factor of loading your shirts onto a boat and sending it halfway around the world. But early in the game, if it makes your company cheaper, that's great because you just buy more shares in your company early on. Um, yes. Fingers crossed that sets you up for life. Yep. I also like that, um, and I was saying this over and over again as we played because I liked it so much. I love that it was an economic game where... If you sold less of your shares at the start, you could perform worse than everyone for the whole game. You could be like, oh, I just make a little few loaves of bread. No, I don't sell as much bread as you. But because you've got more of your share value, it's a game where you can be less of a player. You can impact the game less. And then you can win because you're like the little company that could because you just, (laughs) well, it's like shut up and sit down, right? We are a smaller company than lots of other media companies, but we do own our own company. Yeah. Which I really have always liked. I like that we're small, but everything we do we own and we i like the arc right less you do are that. small and but powerful like the spaceship like chihuahua def- yeah or the spaceship in star trek deep space nine which one with the small defiant one that cloaks like us we can cloak at will <laughs> but we we'd fly around and like sometimes mr wharf is in charge of us yes who's mr wharf in this the, 
Matt. <laughs> Matt is Mr. Wolf. He's single-minded and aggressive and he knows has hair. And he's he knows got some hair. He's got some hair. Literally has some hair. So that's our cry. I'm not we'll talk about whether we want to do a review. Uh if you if you want to see a review, do let us know. Yeah. Um yeah, I did really enjoy it. But if I'm playing something that heavy, I might want something just a bit more thematic. Something okay. like something like Food Chain Magnate was what yeah. I kept thinking about at yeah, the time. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's a fair point. Um or container, maybe something yeah. where uh, maybe the rules explanation is just a little shorter. And the theme is a little more fun. A little stronger as well, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, that's, I like the interlink systems in Arkwright, but there's a level of kind of abstraction there sometimes. So, yes, absolutely. I'm Julian Bashir. I'm Dr. Bashir, by the way. Oh, Bashir, the, yeah. the slightly pervy, oh, very no. pervy. Oh, no, he's really problematic early on, isn't he? He is. He oh, just no. flirts with everything that moves. Oh, no. Hello, I'm a doctor. I'm going to examine you. That's now. exactly what you don't want from a doctor. <laughs> well, you do want them to examine you a bit. Well, you don't when lo- you ask them to. You don't want them to stand 200 feet away behind a white sheet. I'll just and go, be the man on the holodeck who sings those songs. That guy's a bit like Sinatra. Why can't you be Odo? Oh, that's weird. Oh, there's that um, Ferengi. Actually, I'm as grumpy as Odo. I think WizKids are. They are, yeah. WizKids are coming out with a Ferengi trading game. Uh, the way the whiz kids make their miniatures, everybody's going to look like a Ferengi anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what can you do? Uh, that was bit of salt there. Sorry about that. Shall we talk about high society? Let's talk about being in high society. Uh, an old Reiner Knizia card game that now has a beautiful new edition from Osprey Games. I'm going to open the box while you're talking about this. I've put the box in front of Paul. That's He's quite examined small. it. It's a small box. Uh, there's no air in it. It's just got lovely cards with lovely art. Have a look at the art on those big cards, Paul. I'm going I'm to. Oh, that's a very small manual. So what it is? Everyone gets a hand of cards, which is money that they have. But you are a rich person, mm-hmm. uh, which means you don't deal in like little small notes. You might have. A $1 card, a $2 card, a $3 card, a $5 card, a $15 card, and a $25 card. And that's relevant because at no point in this game can you make change. Um, Oh. Yeah. So then a card is dealt off the top of the deck, and it might be like champagne or some art or a pony or whatever it is that rich people have. Um, (laughs) You then go into an auction. Now, all of these things you're bidding for Mm -hmm. um, have a value. Like champagne might just be worth like one. So then you go around the table and players bid. Um, so if I, let's say I bid a dollar, you might bid two dollars, the next person might pass, the next person might bid three dollars. Um, eventually someone's going to win the auction and then they lose all those numbers they bid with and they get the card. Um, so this is how the game works. You're going to get different things with higher and lower values. You might get a boat or a castle uh. or you might just have like a, um, a, uh, a fashionable card, which means your end score is going to be doubled. Oh, because you're just a trendy person or something like in that. a magazine or something. Exactly. So uh, you're all bidding for all of these, but there is a catch. At a certain point, a card comes out of the deck that means the game ends. And this happens really quickly. After like 10 minutes, you, you bid some auctions and you blah, 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 and then you win. Okay. Um, and then the person with the highest score wins the game, except, are you ready for the twist that powers the yes. whole game? The player who has the least money left in their hand is instantly eliminated. So, what that means is you're all trying to, you know, bid and win auctions on these cards. Oh, there's a castle. I want that. I'll bid 10. Another player bids 15 and gets it. Great. Um, However, you want to spend money and get things, but the person who spends the most money loses the game. So, 
I surprised myself because I really like small little card games and I really like auctions. I didn't like High Society. Wow. Okay. Um, as well, it's even more surprising because this is a classic, right? But what here's what screwed me up. Ultimately, for me, as a, someone who doesn't just play with their gut, but like was you know really trying to win this game, it's a game of card counting. Because oh. all you're doing is if someone spends like 15 and you you know they've spent the most, then all you need to do is spend less than them. So you're counting the cards that they've played um, and you're going, okay, they've spent 40 this game. As long as I spend like 39, that's fine. Um, but this is a problem that some people have actually described with modern art whereby this kind of collapses when other people aren't playing the game the same way as you. Because let's say I'm playing conservatively and I'm not going to spend like 40 bucks and then a player uh, who isn't doing the same math as me spends like 50 bucks on a castle. Yeah. Then suddenly it's like, well, hang on, no, because that person who has more stuff than all of us and who spent all their money so they were going to eliminate themselves is now back in the running. So yeah, you bought a cool thing, but all you've done because you spent too much is at the end of the game, you're going to lose. And that player who has more than all of us put together is now going to win. So it's a game of card counting, but where I found that because I, or me and one other player, were the only people counting cards, we lost every time because players who weren't doing the same maths as us Hmm. were spending too much money and putting themselves out, which meant that the player in the middle would often win. So you like the idea of it, but you found sort of very quickly there seems to be a fundamental problem of it just... uh, doesn't functionally work if people are not in the same headspace. Well, right, exactly. Which is exactly the same problem we described in the last podcast with Medici, another Reiner Knizia card game uh, that... In fact, I should put a caveat here. In the last episode, uh, we talked about how we played a really old, ugly version of Medici because there isn't a new pretty one. We were completely wrong, thanks to everyone who uh, put us onto this um, fact check. Grail Games have a new edition of Medici that's really beautiful, really nice. Looks so much better than the one we played. 100%. So if you would like to pick up a copy of that old award-winning card game Medici, then Grail Games have got you covered. There's a new version. It's beautiful. Um, But yeah, it's exactly the same problem we encountered in Medici, whereby it's a lovely card game, assuming everyone is playing at the same level. And Mm. it's frustrating because if you are playing or trying to play the game differently to everyone else, then you'll often lose. Uh, but you are looking through the cards in the new edition of High Society now. Isn't it nice? I really like the style of it, and I really like the simplicity of the idea that you are basically, I mean, not making changes kind of funny and thematically almost appropriate, the idea that you just throw a large chunk of money at something and forget about it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, the, fundamentally, the, the concept just seems cool, and it the style of this new reprint is the right kind of style. It's appropriate. It's new money. It's great Gatsby. Yeah, it immediately takes you into that kind of headspace, and I quite like that. Yeah. So I, I feel like I would still enjoy playing this. I think you would. I think it just rubs me up the wrong way. And yeah, I've seen people talk about uh, modern art and uh, Medici in the same way. That it's a lovely card game if everyone's kind of playing to the same level, or yeah. if whether that's like badly or at a really high level, that's fine. But if you've got a mix of players then other players will just kind of mess the game up for everyone else. I don't know. You know what this sounds like is, and I'm not an expert on this. Maybe I'm an, I've played a lot of poker and... And you used to make money playing poker online. Not a lot, but some. Um, When you play poker with people who don't really care about what's happening or don't entirely know what they're doing, I mean, I want to say anyone who knows poker will just play very tightly and very conservatively because 
when you have very random weird players you just you know you try and be aware of that but it does kind of almost break the game if people just play in a way that makes no sense you mean uh sort of bidding too much bidding weirdly in situations that make no sense or always going in all in all the time yeah because they they think it's exciting and like sooner or later that trips them up but it it's weird to play against people who are just colossally odd in poker and i don't know i don't know if this is the best possible comparison but you're sort of reminding me of that because you you all sit down at the table with an idea of roughly sort of how things are going to go and there's a certain amount of logic and i don't know convention there and then if you just have one or two players in there who are just nuts it makes everything feel so odd yeah so strange and i think that was the that's very similar to what we encountered in medici i can imagine games of modern art going that way and i think it was especially Mm. frustrating in high society because in a longer game you know if you know someone's going to bid a lot for example or someone just likes bidding on things they like you know that don't necessarily make sense you can start accounting for that but because high society is only a 10 15 minute game it's so fast it's a shockingly fast game it's definitely the fastest good run ethnicity game i've played Mm -hmm. there's no time to do that like there might be one key auction that you really need and then they bid more than you reasonably could so you've lost that auction and now the game's over there's no time to adapt even you can't sort of play tightly like you say it just finishes yeah yeah, I mean, that's at least the thing in poker is you. hopefully you identify those players by seeing how they behave and you just adjust accordingly. But it's, I don't know, I remember it would, would happen a bunch is just people who are just not even paying attention to what's going on and don't want to engage a huge amount. And it just feels so odd and so weird, mm. especially in small groups if you're at a table and it's just like three, four, five people and there's someone doing that and you're like, well, what is happening? <laughs> what is going on? So, yeah, potentially one to look at. I think, as I keep saying, the Osprey edition is beautiful. If nothing else, just look at pictures of the new Osprey Games edition of High Society. But in terms of a small, simple game that us that you and I like more, let's talk about number nine. Oh, all right. Let's talk about number nine. Which is almost ungoogleable because it's spelled N-M-B-R-9. Yeah, number... I, uh, what, uh, yes, and I'm trying to think, like, uh, in my head, the number nine itself was within, somewhere within the word number, but it, uh, there's nowhere where that would go. There's no letter that it replaces. Oh, what, like, you know, when, uh, yeah. think, when video games, like, replace one of the letters with, like, a three. Like an A with a four or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, this is a game that I remember being particularly popular i want to say about two years ago now or between two years and a year ago Mm -hmm. everybody i knew was playing it all the time uh and talking about it and uh it sort of fell off a little bit but it's still something that people i know will crack out and play regularly because it's so simple and so hard and so easy to teach i love it to pieces and it's one of those great games where you can teach people the rules and they won't get it but then you start playing and And they immediately get it and they go oh but where do I put this one? So do you want to explain that number nine? Ex- exactly the noise they make like a demented ghost. So you have all these, they're like Tetris piece numbers, aren't they? And yep. they're all a slightly different shape. They're all made up of squares. Uh, you lay them down and the level, you can lay them on top of each other, providing they don't, um, 
they have to fit perfectly on top of one another. So there can't be sort of any overhangs or any, if there are numbers that didn't quite fit together and there's a gap between these Tetris piece numbers, then you can't cover over that gap. So you've got the difficulty, first of all, of stitching all these numbers together into sort of a layer, because gradually you want to build more layers on top of those because your base layer doesn't score you any points anyway. Oh no. When you start putting stuff on higher layers, that scores you points. Like the first layer above the your base layer scores you one times whatever the numbers are. You remember those <laughs> numbers that you put? So like if you put down the number eight on that level, that squiggly number eight, weird blocky thing, and it's level one, that scored you one times eight points. And then if you put a number eight on your level well, I want to I want to say second story, but that's because I'm <laughs> British. But on that third level, that's two two times number eight. So you have this thing where it's very straightforward to obviously you want to put higher numbers higher up, but you want to build a solid base without too many holes in that you can build all these other stacks of numbers upon. But none of them fit together properly. Uh, there is the challenge of you, you don't know which order stuff is going to come out in. Everybody's numbers come out in the same order and you can watch everybody playing. So you can just, if somebody pulls a good move, you can try and copy it and be like, oh, I'll click this number in next to this one. <laughs> but at some point, inevitably, you know, people diverge and someone's like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make my low level bigger. So uh, I can't have as many numbers maybe on my high level, but hopefully they'll fit in a way that is better so that the high level, off- it's just this, weird tetris multiplication puzzle that never gets too complicated never gets over like overwhelmingly mathsy mm. but uh everybody relates to this space clicking together thing and then you play a game and everyone's like oh no i know how to play now that game doesn't count i'll play, play this time <laughs> then i'll get it right and i'll get better at it and they play and then they go no I won't because <laughs> it's quite hard it really is it's uh it that mechanic we saw in a uh, karuba i think as well which we oh, talked about ages back that... but the idea of um you oh, get that uh, like 1986. It was about. It was the or, 60s, I think. Yeah. You and I were making love every day. Wow. But, uh, but not to each other. Not to. No. There's nothing wrong with that. No. But we just had our no. schedules never matched up. No. So, uh, and it's also uh, a mechanic that we're seeing in a game called Welcome to, which we're being sent now, uh, which is about designing American suburbs. But all I think it was about jungles. <laughs> <laughs> it's. I mean. Uh. <clears throat> so it's the idea that um, you flip a card or reveal a thing so it's like I don't know in the case of number nine it's okay everyone put your one down and you'll put the one down then you flip a card and it's everyone put your two maybe everyone's put the two in the same place and then yeah like you say it's mm. everyone put your four down and then you put down a four and then you see your friend has put the four in a different place and from that moment on when you're when you start deviating I al- it always feels to me like you know, you're in a maze and you're going, okay, I'm going to go this way. And your friend goes, I'll go this way. Bye. And then yeah, you walk away and then like... Distantly, you just hear... <laughs> yeah, right? Because you get that. You look over at someone in number nine and someone goes, no! And you don't quite know why. Because <laughs> you're playing the same game. You both have to put your sevens down now. But for some reason, you've got a great place to put a seven. But they've built themselves into this weird hellscape where they yeah. can't put a seven down. Yeah, or, or vice versa. It's... And it's, it's, it's Yep, go on. Sorry. No, it's it's just so good, and it's very difficult to describe. But I, I guess I just feel bad for the developers that we didn't do a review because, yeah, like we've said, we've tackled the mind and decrypto, both yeah. very hard games to explain on the site recently. And I feel like we all love number nine, and we should probably definitely review it. I guess. I mean, we're it gonna. It feels almost too simple to. We're gonna start streaming uh, playthroughs of games on Twitch recently. Maybe it's a game to do for that. 
It's visually, it's very easy to understand, and I guess the visual combination of us playing it on camera and swearing, and I was going to say losing our minds. Yeah, well, same thing, right? There we go. Like people, people. I I think at least some of the people who donate donate to watch us lose our minds, go wrong. <laughs> yeah. Please play this game that's hard. I mean, that's basically the plan for Twitch, isn't it? It's like, what games are fun to watch people play? And the answer is the ones that are just huge pains in the ass. Yeah, yeah, maybe you're right. Uh, speaking of games that are pains in the ass, um, I have played Broom Service. This right. is a game by Alexander Pfister, uh, who designed Great Western Trail. Um, one of Shut Up Sit Down's favourite games. Uh, also some cute card games that I'm playing at the minute called Oh My Goods and Port Royale. Um, but uh, yes, this is his game of delivering potions and being a witch. Uh, it is kind of a very simple Euro game. You can um, spend your turn like taking potions or you might spend it uh, moving, flying a little witch around or you might spend it delivering a potion to the gnome who lives on this central board. Sure. Uh, it's all quite cute, quite sweet. I really mm-hmm. like the theme. Um but here's the main mechanic that powers it. Uh, this is it, It's quite a nice, simple game. Mm-hmm. Except for this idea that you all pick your actions simultaneously. Kind of like Race for the Galaxy or something else where you go, ooh, I'm going to pick the, you know, fly across the mountain and pick magic wand actions. When you go to play that action, you have to decide whether you're doing it in the brave fashion or the cowardly fashion. Okay. This has appeared in a couple of games. Okay. Okay. So let's say mm. you want to fly across a mountain in a brave fashion. Sure. Uh, you go, I'm going to do it brave, which would mean you rocket across that mountain like a fighter jet. Great. However, mm-hmm. if you play brave uh, and then anyone else around the table has picked the same action and you do this via like this uh, fun announcing thing where you go, I am a brave forest witch um, or I'm a cowardly forest witch. So if anyone else is a forest witch in that example, then you don't get the action at all. Like, it just doesn't work. Which means, um, as you go around the circle, the next player around the circle might go, but I am a brave forest witch. But then if someone else in the circle of players has also played the forest witch, then they don't get an action either. So this is the central thing. You play brave if you're willing to take the risk that no one else is doing the thing. Yeah. Or you play cowardly if you just want the slightly pathetic version of the action. I'm a cowardly forest witch. I'm a cowardly forest witch. <laughs> a lot of people really like uh, Broom Service. A friend of mine uh, says it's his kid's favorite game. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people I've seen have tons of love online for this game. I didn't get on with it that well. Um, uh, in the same way that some of my friends didn't. Um, and the reason for this is when you're playing a game that involves a lot of planning, yeah. when you're th- when I'm thinking a lot about what is the most efficient move, what is the best way to deliver these potions, um, I did just find the central mechanic really quite frustrating, which makes me feel like a stick in the mud. And I don't... I hate saying I didn't like a board game because, like, well, someone else had fun. You know, I tried to do this action and they denied it to me because they were the brave mountain wizard and... They had fun and I didn't, and this game sucks. But um, no, I did find it um, kind of incongruous that it's simultaneously Mm -hmm. a game of planning and calculation in the manner of lots of economic games, but also a game of like playfulness where sometimes that thing you plan just doesn't happen. Um, And I get why it's my friend's kid's favorite game because wanting to do a thing and then it not happening is so funny to the whole table. But this isn't a game that takes, you know, 20 minutes. It's not like Citadels where you can get assassinated by a player who picked the assassin and that's kind of funny because the game's quite quick. You know, Broom Service takes about an hour and just the the sense that you're in second place and you can't quite get into first place. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Does this make me sound like a stick in the mud? No, I don't know. It's... in. 
I feel like probably as kids uh, or younger players, it's probably actually really appealing to have that level of challenge. Um, and I, I mean, I'm trying to throw myself back like to when I was young, like four or five years ago when I was a kid. And would I have enjoyed this? Would I have found it interesting? I think I might have. Uh, and I can still see the appeal of it as a really good family game. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I might have to just... I feel like I'm kind of on the fence here. Uh, yeah, and of course you haven't played it. I guess yeah. um, the moments in games that we really cherish is when something happens that everyone finds funny. And um, it's... The uh, lots of games where um, bad things can happen and everyone laugh at. That's that's a trait that's found in tons of games that yeah. Shut Up and Sit Down recommended. Someone has hubris and tries to do the thing, and then it backfires horribly. Um, I found that in Broom Service, when I you know you play Brave and someone else have it has it, and then you go, oh no, um, that's really funny for the whole table. But it it was genuinely infuriating for me. <laughs> um, in a way that I don't often find with board games. Okay. Um, I, th- I think it was just the... It's the investment of time and planning yeah. versus just like, well, you can't do that. Yeah. Whereas in something like, I don't know, Wiz War, you know, you can do the brave, stupid move and it only ever is a brave, stupid move. Where in Broom Service, it felt more like a move that wasn't stupid. I'd planned it and it was the correct move and it didn't work and that was just really annoying to yes. me. Yes. Um, still, Broom Service has a ton of fans out there. Um, so while it's not a game that I feel inclined to review because time is precious and there are so many board games I would love to review, so it's probably not going to get the review treatment on Shut Up and Sit Down from me. Perhaps one worth Googling because, like I say, lots of people do really enjoy it. And I love the theme. I want to be a witch flying over a brave Oa, witch. Hill and Dale. I'm not going to be a brave witch. I'm going to be a cowardly witch. I'm going to be a cowardly witch. Yeah, but then you and I play cowardly the whole time and then we lose the game. Because uh, Matt would win. Matt would win being a brave and sometimes annoyed Forrest. Mr. Worf which Worf yes put your hand in my mailbag for me a letter well it's that time again shall we reach into the mailbag don't do it Should Paul we do that I'm lowering the ladder the work experience guy Climbing lost a leg down into the mailbag bye well it's just all me, the way but... back out of the mailbag oh ah. he's back <clears throat> there we go That's did you a get a letter Oh, hang on, I'll go back down into the... Yes, I did. Uh, mm, mm. Uh, Dear Shut Up and Sit Down, greetings from Malaysia. I just wanted letting you know that your awesomeness reaches all the way down here. My name is Jason. Here is my question. Thank you, Jason. Here is your question. I didn't quite read that very well. That's really nice, though. Uh, There was an Instagram post from Quinns that jokingly asks... Uh, says that you were going to review a jigsaw puzzle. Sorry, I'm not reading anything very well today. Now I know that was a joke... But what do you think about jigsaw puzzles? Are jigsaw puzzles considered board games? Uh, any encounters with people telling you, ooh, I play jigsaw puzzles, they're fun. Do we have any childhood memories about them? Um, shut up and sit down. Categorically recommend jigsaw puzzles. Well, Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Uh, uh, go on. No. Go, do you? No? I mean, I do want to stress that while it was a joke getting us to review a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle... I mean, mm, shut up and sit down. Has, fun. has done a lot of sort of joke pieces of content. What if we like did a really jigsaw popular. puzzle live on Twitch? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, that could go supernova if we're we enough. have to. That's definitely a charity stream idea. Yeah, oh. or like a Christmas stream. Oh no! What if it's one of those twenty-four and we have to do twenty-four hours worth of jigsaw puzzles and we go insane? I'm down. Oh, <laughs> it's, yeah, jigsaw puzzle. I mean, 
You, mm-hmm. you when I uh, suggested doing this question on the podcast, you immediately went off. On, I think you you sort of had a seizure or had something, a, yes. and you started talking about what if there was a legacy jigsaw game where you opened up packets and then had yeah. to replace bits of the jigsaw. I'm thinking like you start with a single piece and you don't know where it goes within the picture. You put it down and it gives you instructions about like open this box or this, but almost like a choose your own adventure or something. Or and like then, an esca- one of those um, escape rooms in a box. Yeah, something like that. And then you start assembling a picture, and depending upon which choices you make, it turns into a different picture, which maybe turns into an adventure or a game or something. And then part of it says, oh, take all these jigsaw pieces that you've clicked together out and like destroy this part of the jigsaw and replace it with this part of the jigsaw. Hmm. If Matt Leacock or um, <laughs> Rob Davio, Rob Davio, or anybody's listening, um, I I'll just I'll just take five percent. <laughs> but do you see what I mean? The idea that maybe you build something, and I don't know, maybe it lends itself to a map. It's absolutely not the worst idea I ever heard. Like all ideas, it's an idea, and I haven't executed it or worked on it. And as anyone in game design knows. When you have ideas, it's not worth very much unless you actually try and then you discover something fundamental about it doesn't work. Or again, a line from Matt. There are no bad ideas, Paul. There are just the ideas we keep here in this bin. (laughs) Uh, Jigsaws are weird to me. I tried to do one, I think, for some kind of like out of vague journalistic intent for Shut Up and Sit Down about five years ago. Um, And the weird thing I found is that they're meant to be this like soothing activity, like knitting. No, but they're just really annoying. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you kind of gaze over this like sort of pile of pieces, and then you start putting it together. I guess that what is satisfying about the arc of a jigsaw is it is very hard initially. Obviously, when you just have a thousand pieces, it's infuriating. But then it does have a thing which would be admirable in any board game where it just gets easier and it only gets easier and easier and easier because you have less and less pieces and more and more to work with and that's all through your hard work it's not like it's getting artificially easier every turn it's getting easier because of what you did you beautiful boy do you find do you find uh are you satisfied at the end when you have a picture of van gogh's starry night or like the (laughs) skyline of chicago or something i mean yes but in no way is it worth the time invested. And then what do you do? Do you just put it back in the box? It's like, oh, I did that, and you immediately put it away. <laughs> to get weirdly candid for a second, I think what I liked about Jigsaws as a kid was sitting down with my parents. I think it was like a, a moment where we could just be silent and be together, which is something we've talked on Shut Up and Sit Down about before. Of yeah. Like, board games are a way of just sitting down with people. Um, and so that's my main positive memories of it. It's having an experience where I didn't have to talk to my parents. We could just exist together. Yeah. <laughs> Paul smirking at that comment. It's kind of true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jigsaws. How about that? So do you do you recommend Jigsaws? Look, man, for that smirk alone, I'm going to oh, no. make you do a 10,000-piece oh. jigsaw and see if you... And write about it or film a video. <laughs> I think a video review is, is what you deserve. Oh. There was a... We're going to do a few questions today. There was a question asked on Reddit uh, that I really, really liked, um, yep. which was... On, on, this is the Reddit board games board. Yeah. If any Reddit board game users are listening... I know what question that was. You guys are all right. The question that was asked was, if you were sucked into a board game in the style of Jumanji, what board game would you least like to be put into? Do you have an answer? Because I've got multiple answers. I've got an answer. Paul, stop looking through the high society cards. They're really nice, and I was thinking that I want to be in this game. Yeah. On a casino. That's just being and rich. And perfume. The game I would least like to be in, Paul, is Diplomacy. So, wow. Pe- people might not uh, 
know about Diplomacy, this like legendary game that's been around for like 50 years. It, it sort of models a war in Europe where players write down their moves and, and write down who they're supporting. But the catch in Diplomacy is that everyone needs to work together. So it's like, you'll support me if I attack Italy, right? And you go, yeah. But then we all write down our moves and maybe you're not supporting me. Um, Alliance is a powerful in Diplomacy, but so is uh, sort of backstabbing people. It's a game of figuring out when and where to backstab people yep. and hopefully doing it the turn before uh, you do. And it's very complicated and very beloved and there are all kinds of competitions for it. But you were telling me recently that the interesting thing about diplomacy, if you ask a diplomat, is that real-life diplomacy is to do with not going back on your word. Apparently, according to more and more stuff I've read that is in, in the media right now and commented upon by national security experts and diplomats, is people. sometimes it takes people a while to make a deal because they don't want to make a deal that they then just throw out the window in mm. three or six or... Three, I was going to say three or six months, but even years. People try and it saves everybody work if you come to an <laughs> agreement that works for a long time. And everybody trusts you if they like they met you two years ago and you said you'd do a thing and then you tried your best to do it. Yeah. Rather than if you did a thing and then immediately tapped your nose and winked and then were like, oh, by the way, we're taxing all of your pairs. Uh, <laughs> lol, pair tax. It's just you wouldn't work with that person anymore. You just go somewhere else. Right. So I thought that was fascinating. And the reason I don't want to be in the board game diplomacy is it models like an even worse vision of international politics whereby people just would backstab each other all the time. And I know that happens a bit in world politics, but like you say, like on a diplomat-to-diplomat level, it tends not to because then you just would never work in that field ever again. So, yeah, I wouldn't want to be in the world diplomacy because the one thing that could make like World War One or World War Two or whatever game it is, whatever war it is that diplomacy models worse mm-hmm. is if the humans in it would just untrusting uh, conniving to yeah, people. Yeah, no, that's completely valid. That's wholly valid. What Jumanji... If we were to pry the lid off a board game and you oh. were to go, whoa, and in some 1990s CG style be sucked in there, uh, what game would you not want to be sucked into? Do I came up with like four. <laughs> okay. I mean, I came up with a lot that are just about random horror, which is Galaxy Trucker. Yeah. Uh, and Wizwar. Wizwar is a whole bunch of random, horrible nonsense and nasty spells. You fell into a um, rose bush and then got set on fire. Yeah. I mean, th- th- nothing. nobody in Wizwar is having a good time. No. And at least in Galaxy Trucker, there's a chance that you might have a good time and make some money. But there's also a chance you'll be sucked into the vacuum of space or eaten by an yes, alien. Yes, or, or your engines will fall off and then you just don't do anything yeah forever You're just there or a ba- or if you play with some of the expansion models a battery might explode <laughs> or a battery take your might face explode off. or um just flux <laughs> you what if not- i was just in flux and it's like we you know to win you've got to do this oh now you've got to do this oh it's completely random it's like who that would that's that would drive anybody insane yeah it would be like oh today there's no gravity isn't that funny that's my favorite no it's not (laughs) it's my favorite branch of human psychology is the idea that as uh sort of conscious beings our Mm -hmm. brains are working all the time to make systems and categories in order out of a a fundamentally like chaotic world yes and that humans like to believe that it's why we believe in conspiracy theories because um, a lot of the time the truth is like oh it's just random it was just coincidence is why this happened it's like you know people don't like to believe that JFK was shot by just a guy 
because then you have to acknowledge well any of us could be shot by a guy for no reason that changes the course of world history and that's scary so it's much easier to believe that it was done by the mob yeah I'm, no. <laughs> I don't know why I felt the need to no, caveat it's, that it's valid I People... almost caveated it with and maybe he was <laughs> which is not which is not but, useful no that's true People do, they create these things and especially if there's an absence of reason or if maybe they don't have quite all of the information because some of it's classified or hidden and sometimes that's just somebody protecting their own backside because it's like, oh yeah, there is some secret thing about the JFK assassination. It's that I should have done this and I didn't. So I'm classifying this for a hundred years. <laughs> and it's just like, there should have been a person watching that window or that that building should have been cleared and this person didn't do their job. Was it? Uh, and It's this, not, you know, a cause, it's just negligence. This sentence that I'm about to say reveals a lot about uh, your and my relationship. But I don't uh, know if it was you or my wife who was uh, commenting... <laughs> who was commenting recently that um it uh, the queen of england recently like just released a whole bunch of letters yeah george the third stuff oh right yeah that yeah. was me yeah because she has because it's her family so she just has loads of their stuff that about the, the shut up and sit down off topic corner. <laughs> the, because the queen's family is obviously the royal family and so she has loads of their personal effects and historical correspondence and i think some of it is just stuff that people have never had a chance to look at so it's actual proper valid historical documents that may help you in this case for george the third get to know him a bit better and understand his state of mind at certain points in history because he did a lot of he was very when he was more when his mental health was better, he was very clever and he did architecture and astronomy, had all these interests. Mm. Um, and obviously he, for whatever reason, was really angry at the United States and couldn't reason with them. And so the revolution kicked off. Um, all of these things happened. Uh, and it's, on top, if you have watched the movie Hamilton, we're referring to the monarch in Hamilton. Who, oh, yeah. Who yes. has a few musical numbers. Does he? Yeah. Oh. It's, he has the best song in, in Hamilton. In my humble opinion... I'm going to tell you another off-topic thing in a moment. Okay. Uh, um, but it's like, you know, if people had ever had access to some of this stuff, it might have informed biographies and historical analyses of his state of mind or what he was doing. And she's just had them. And I guess there's that conflict of like, well, it's your family's stuff. Are other people entitled to it? No. But then it's <laughs> national history or international history. So are people entitled to it? Well, maybe. And where do you draw that line? And just also the fact that in this documentary that I watched, she just didn't, didn't seem to care. People were like, we've discovered amazing things about him. And she's like, hmm. Yeah, I mean, she is 90 in a job she can't quit. I mean, I'm not a monarchist, but you I do can, have sympathy you, for that. There are lots of European monarchs who have God uh, save our great... No, I'm not going to sing that. You don't have to keep doing that. She could just, you know, <laughs> go could, and live could, on a yacht. She could hear us right now. Uh, on the topic of diplomacy and binding details, I had a letter from Chris G that I thought was really cool. Um, he says, thanks for the great work you do. I'm currently a student studying contract law, so we spent a lot of time discussing why we choose, as a matter of policy, to make certain promises binding by law. Some of the key reasons include enhancing our capacities for future planning and being able to make more creative decisions that you couldn't make if you couldn't rely on that deal. Listening to you talk about sidereal confluence recently, a lovely negotiation uh, economic game that yeah. Matt and I did a video review of that you can see on Shut Up and Sit Down's YouTube channel, which is a great drum solo from Paul, by the way. 
I rewatched that recently. Uh, anyway, Chris G continues. Um, it struck me that one of the things that makes Sidereal Confluence so good is the fact that it has binding promises. Yeah. Yet a lot of negotiation games at the moment seem to have this emphasis on non-binding promises and backstabbing. Yeah. Which, which I get. He writes, backstabbing is fun, and in some conflict and diplomacy-based games like Cosmic Encounter, it makes more sense. Do you think we could use more negotiation games with binding promises? I immediately, yes. Because yes, this is a yes. thing I found cool about Sidereal. It's like, yes. are you going to do a thing? Okay, you do the thing. You're locked into that. And yeah. that is, in the context of the game, really interesting. And that informs like what other stuff happens. Yeah, I feel like the idea of games including backstabbing, and to pick some famous examples like Diplomacy or the Game of Thrones board game, yeah. that's such an immediate thing for people to like hang their attention and enthusiasm onto. People go, yes. oh, we'll play Game of Thrones and we can backstab each other. And that is cool and it's fun. But also, like Richard Garfield says, or is famously... I maybe misquoted at this point. Um, but he says, all negotiation game war games are kind of the same game because it's deciding, well, how long can we work together and then how soon can I backstab you before you backstab me? Whereas Christie's completely right. I think binding details, binding uh, arrangements are so much more interesting because I guess people don't like them because maybe the idea of binding, people think, well, now I'm restricted. But it's completely the opposite. I'm mm. restricted in a game with backstabbing because I can't really do anything. But if I can construct agreements and say, hey, you know what? Why don't we both sign this deal that we won't attack each other for three turns? That's fascinating. Because I could yeah. have set that at two turns. I could have set it at three, four. You could change the deal. You could add clauses. You can agree or not. And that, I think, makes for a game that's so much richer. And I, it's And I think it's interesting for the other people around the table because they see what's happening and then they, they want to work with that or work around that. Or, you know, if there is a certain specific trade deal or something, then they might within the rules of things try and sort of undermine that or just like oh you have you agreed to give this person wood well if I don't supply you with lumber what does that yes it's like your deal falls through because I can't supply you the raw materials that allows you to sell the refined I don't know that's maybe interesting in the game concept yeah it is I was very happy to see that um, the new edition of Twilight Imperium the big space opera game Um, that's always been a game of players talking and backstabbing each other but the new fourth edition that I reviewed last year has these little binding promissory notes and but then Twilight has always been full of stuff that I found kind of interesting the kind of soft politics that you're talking about like if you play the space lions who are on the front of the box who we always refer to because the idea of a race of intergalactic lions is so funny to us the space lions special power is that they control trade and that they can cancel the deals of other people and people need to go to them and yeah, this is the other thing people, I think, don't realise is that negotiation doesn't have to necessarily be between two people. If you set up your game in the right way, it's fascinating to have, like, okay, so Paul and Quinns want to make a deal, but we have to do it via Matt, and Matt has to sign off on it. And then you can have wonderful, fun asymmetry of, like, uh, I don't know. I, I'm all, I can never remember the name of it, but I often enjoy making reference to this old game from the 80s that involved interstellar trading where four players are just mining companies trying to make money, but then the fifth player is like the UN who has to make sure that nobody's prices get too high. And the idea of having a player who is sort of outside of the game and just yeah. trying to make sure everything's sort of smooth and and functions. Um, yeah, I think there's so much more room for negotiation games that aren't just about betrayal, but are about, um, about constructing agreements. Yeah, yeah. And then also, who's to say that if, if a deal is binding, as it is in Sidereal... Um, it doesn't mean you can't go back on it. It doesn't mean that that decision space is removed entirely. It can mean, yes, you can go back on it, but the penalties are massive. Yes. 
Which is, again, not boring, but more interesting. Yeah, because occasionally there might be situations where you do that and somebody didn't expect you to, but it's because you have a, a secret play up your sleeve or something and you take the hit and then you reframe the agreement or you just go shopping somewhere else or something. Absolutely. Yeah. You're going shopping uh, later on today, aren't you? You're going to be looking for more houses to live because right now you are living in sunny Brighton uh, with me. In I, Well, I'm living in a hotel that is the loudest hotel in Brighton. Yeah. It's in the Guinness Book of Records as a place where uh, people will just make noises. It's known for... It's like, you know how there are ghosts and they're like, this is the most haunted house. It's got 10 ghosts. <laughs> they all make these noises. It's like that, but they're just people and they just make the noises of television and slamming doors and clearing their sinuses. Uh, and uh, let me be the first to tell the Shut Up and Sit Down audience, you tried to make what food in your hotel? Oh. You tried to make... You, so I... You, you know that answer there's... Answer the question. Microwave popcorn. Okay. Put it in the microwave for the amount of time that it said. Mm. It caught fire. The fire alarm went off. <laughs> and the hotel was very sad because it was not... A normal you set off food the fire time. Alarm. It was not hugely late, but it was like half past midnight. And this Spanish man who runs the night shift came in and went like, you know, I know it's not your fault, but like, and the way he described it, he was like, you know that this basically this happens all of the time. That like he he was not surprised. <laughs> he was he he was basically like, yeah, I know it's not your fault. Yep, this has happened lots of times. And I'm like, what well, the microwave seems really powerful. And he's like, yeah, I did. People don't really. <laughs> and it's, you know, they usually go up to like 800 watts or something. And I think this is more than that. I don't know what it is. They've given you some like ancient sort of pre-war nuclear atomizer microwave that just destroys. You things. know what? When I used a long time ago, when I used to work in Safeway, we had. I feel like it's a joke to say an industrial <laughs> strength microwave. But somebody said that's what it was. And it was more powerful than most of the ones that you could buy. And it cooked everything really fast. And there was like, you had to know this because otherwise you'd be like, I'm just putting my thing in for three minutes. And you'd get like a tiny lump of charcoal at the end because it would atomize it. So you had to be like, oh, I'm cooking my my thing put it in for like 10 seconds and it would come out like fried wow this is this i'm is imagining the kind of thing a, while a bond well. villain would use to cook james bond anyway the point is i followed the instructions <laughs> and it was bad and then a spanish man was like it's not your fault don't worry but this happens so often for more hot chat, you can go to shutupandsitdown.com. Uh, I feel like we've plugged that enough this episode. So instead, I'll say, if you've got a question that you want Paul and I to discuss, whether it's about board games, the Queen, tea, fire I'll alarms... I'll tell you my other George III thing in a moment. Oh, will you? No, sorry, you should finish closing, and I'll put the lid back on high society. Okay. There we go. And then after we close the podcast, you'll tell me more about George III? Uh, just on the end. Just okay. on the end, when most of these people have left, because a lot of them are getting up to leave now. If you would like to send us an email, like I say, that's contact at shutupandsitdown.com. This is a nice pen. What, do you, what are you going to tell me about George III? Oh, so, yeah, and also I went to uh, Boston in Massachusetts and they have a tea party museum. Okay. Well, you can, uh, and it's all actually really interesting stuff about the South French Revolution. But they had a talking portrait of George III, and it's just it looks like a picture, and then it just starts talking because <laughs> it's a video, and it was a bit weird. Wow. There we go. Okay. I tell. Did you know that they threw the tea in the harbor? But it's not like you just throw some <laughs> tea in a harbor. It's like the harbor's quite shallow, and they had many tons of tea. So it's not like they threw it in the water and it went away. It just piled up and up and up 
to the point where they all got quite tired and it got quite boring because they were doing it like all because there was so much and it was so heavy so it's not like it all just washed away it's just like the next day there were just piles of tea on the beach at low tide wow yeah that was good. Yeah. I was ready to be bored, but that was a good fact. Thank you very <laughs> much for listening, everybody. I've been Quentin Smith. Uh, I've been Paul Dean. And I have been... Mm. I like board games. I burn popcorn. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.